Well, good morning. Good morning, Calvary family. Good morning to everyone who's joining us in the city. Good morning to everyone who's joining us in Canada, North America, and indeed the world. And a special good morning to those who are joining us from Kilbride. I'm excited that you can join us uh, today as we worship God in, in music and in word. I'm, I'm glad that you can be joining us on this 16th Sunday as we endure COVID-19. It's been an interesting 16 weeks, I think we'd all agree. But before I get into actually preaching, I want to complain. I think as Newfoundlanders, sometimes we feel like we can complain, especially when it comes to the weather. I mean, it's not uncommon to have five seasons in, five seasons in a day. We got you know winter, spring, summer, fall, and fog. So let me just take a moment to complain. Up to this point, 2020 has been, it's been miserable, if I could say it like that. It has definitely come with its trials and its challenges. In January, we had snowmageddon. We had 120 centimeters, which is two and a half, almost three feet of snow. We had a state of emergency. We had us specifically, my house, we lost power for a day. I nearly broke my back shoveling the snow. And just before Snowmageddon and for five weeks after it, I had this wicked chest infection where I was coughing for the whole time. I also have a very difficult neighbor who is unhappy and displeased with my children's play behavior. And then in March, COVID came to our shores. My eldest daughter had her school year cut short, which is effectively an early summer for her. Great for her, but for us, you know, we really enjoyed her being in school. Charlotte, I love you, by the way. <laughs> We've endured 16 weeks of social distancing and restrictions. I had to make a difficult decision to leave out family when we did the whole double bubble thing. Uh, and my wife and I, we even made a conscious decision to try and obey the government restrictions uh, and social distancing. Um, and this was a particular challenge because as we tried to model good obedience to our kids, it seemed like everyone else around us was, as time progressed, becoming more relaxed with the restrictions and just wanting to spend time with each other. And it made it really hard for us to say to our kids, you know, well, we need to wait just a bit more. And so that was a challenge. And last week I made a ministry decision that, uh, that would allow me to focus on church planting uh, a bit more, actually 100% more. And as a result of that, this might cause some financial situation and troubles in, at the end of September. I'm also trying to figure out how to church plant uh, and start a church in Kilbride in the midst of a pandemic. And, and for the last 13 of 16 weeks, I've been getting headaches, double vision, eye strain. On top of it all, I have a herniated disc in my back when it shoots pain down my leg, and I also have vertigo. So you'll have to forgive me if I think that 2020 has been challenging and not without trial. But if I stood here and said to you that in these trials, temptations haven't arisen, I'd be, I'd be lying, right? I would absolutely be lying. Because if there's anything I've learned, it's this. When life gets difficult, temptation usually seems to rear its ugly head. And what's worse, when life does get difficult, I want to blame everyone else except for me. So yeah, 2020 hasn't been fun. It's been really difficult. And I wonder how many people also feel like this as well. At the end of April, I launched into a new sermon series in the book of James. Now, James is one of those books that people either absolutely love or absolutely hate. And here's why. 
The book of James leaves no room for half-hearted and compromising faith. James wants his audience to know that if you're going to be a Christian, you'd better start acting like one. That's how confronting the book is. And we see that all throughout its five chapters. Now, James, in his letter, he's all about faith in action and what it looks like to be a maturing believer. And, and that's something I'm going to come back to time and time again as I go from chapter one into chapter five. James, faith in action. James, faith in action. And so I want you to bury this down deep inside because it, it is a reoccurring theme throughout all five of the chapters. Now, in the opening half of, of chapter one, we're challenged to live out our faith by placing our trust in God. That's what faith and action looks like in the opening half of chapter one. You see, verse one to 11 deals with trusting him when we are tested. But verses 12 to 18, it begs an important question. James shifts gears from the external trials and tests to the inward temptations that we feel because of the trials. And we're left to ask, why should I trust God when I'm being tempted? It's a legit question. I don't think anyone would, would say, no, we shouldn't even ask this because it's totally legit. And I'm going to unpack that as we move forward. Now, no doubt this, this is a hard passage, particularly verses 14 and 15. I really struggled with it. And, and truth be told, you may not like what you're about to hear. All right, it may confront you. It may cause you to struggle. You might get angry with it, but just stay with me, all right? There's, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. Now, just a heads up, I'm not going to start with verse 12, all right? I'm going to take verse 12 and park it at the end of the sermon. I'm going to unpack that uh, after verse 18, but for now, I'm going to jump into verse 13. And if you're taking notes, here's my first point. God is not the source of your temptation, and, and we need to be clear on that straight up right? God is not the source of your temptation. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And for most people, this would be pretty straightforward, right? But when you consider the context and the culture of the time when James was writing this, this wasn't so. Now, the last time I checked in the first century, there were 12 Roman gods with which people worshipped. And it wasn't uncommon for these gods to be jealous or angry or exhibit unjust wrath against their followers. And it wasn't uncommon for these gods to tempt or be tempted by one another. This is the culture that these believers are living in. And so straight up, James wants to clarify that Yahweh is nothing like these pagan gods. He cannot be tempted and neither does he tempt people, period. This is who he is. He's holy and he's good. Being tempted isn't something that's even remotely found in his nature. In fact, when you read from Genesis to Revelation, you see well over 500 references of God being both holy and good, and none of them even remotely talk about temptation being a part of his nature, but let's just pause for a quick second and ask, what is temptation? Now, if you remember back in April when I started preaching through James, I said, testing is to God as temptation is to Satan. You see, God uses testing to mature you and grow you and, and cause you to trust in him, whereas Satan uses temptation to cause us 
to doubt God's faithfulness, Satan uses temptation to entice us to sin. But let me give you just one quick example. Give you a COVID-19 example. Canada.ca describes the CERB benefit like this. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or or CERB, gives financial support to employed and self-employed Canadians who are directly affected by COVID-19. You see, in the early days of COVID-19, when this benefit was it wasn't as clearly as defined and there was some confusion about it, one might have been tempted to, well, just say a little white lie to, to fudge the numbers to make it look like they actually needed the assistance, right? Because let's just face it, an extra $2,000 over four weeks is pretty enticing. But you see, God has no vulnerability to temptation. Temptation doesn't originate in him. He has no disposition towards it and is completely unaffected by it, but he fully understands it. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Let me show you. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And in no way does this contradict who God is. In fact, if anything, knowing that Jesus endured temptation, it allows us to draw closer to God Believe it or not, yes, Jesus was tempted, but it was his humanity that was tempted, not his divinity. You see, Satan knows that he can't attack the holiness of God. He just can't do it. So he thought maybe, just maybe if I attack his human side, the human side of this God-man, then maybe, maybe I can get him to stumble. And praise the Lord, he was unsuccessful. It's like as one commentator describes it, God is about as influenced by temptation as a sunbeam shining on a landfill as untouched by the trash, right? There's just, there's no, no comparison. And this, my friends, is a really, really good thing. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says. For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh, amen. That's just, oh, that's so good to know that I can come before the throne of God because he, Christ empathizes with our weaknesses. You see, God is not the source of temptation, and, but, but he fully understands it. In every way, like I just read, Christ was tempted and he did not sin. And because of this, because of this, when you are tempted and struggling, you can run to him over and over and over and over again, because over and over and over again, he will stand there welcoming you, giving you mercy and grace in your help and time of need. This is who God is. He is good, and he is holy, and he is able to help you in your weaknesses. But if temptation doesn't come from God, God, where does it come from? Where does it come from? 
The seed of temptation is planted when we feel like we're lacking something. Yeah? It comes from within. Regardless of how it manifests itself, the seed of temptation is planted within and it grows from within. Look at verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is the huge elephant in the room that we need to tackle today. Because when we are weak, God is strong. Point two. You know, as I prepared for the sermon, I really wrestled with verses 14 and 15. I found them to be the most confronting and challenging verses uh, in chapter one because James puts the spotlight back on us, right? He's like, it's like he's saying, guys, if you want to mature as a Christian, if you want to progress and become more mature in your faith, you need to own your garbage. That's, that's the essence of verse 14 and 15. You need to own the fact that you are responsible for your temptation. No one else. We can't play the blame game. You can't blame God. You can't sidestep or redirect. You can't say, he made me do it. You can't even say, the devil made me do it. Because the devil can't make you do anything. He doesn't have the power to do that. Now granted, yes, he is the father of lies and the great tempter. But he's more interested in planting those seeds of doubt and temptation and watching you stumble. I think sometimes we give him more credit than what he's truly given. Or than what he truly deserves, I should say that. You see, temptation will come from him, but it ultimately grows inside of us once the seed has been planted. Again, look at verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And I love what James is doing here. In, in six short verses, he uses four different metaphors to describe what's happening. And here he has three. He's got hunting, fishing, and conception, or metaphors for conception or conceiving. And maybe rightfully so. I think the metaphors and analogies really suit. Have you ever considered why? Why baited traps works so well. Because when an animal senses the bait, their senses become overwhelmed and the temptation to consume it becomes too difficult to resist. The bait looks good. It smells fantastic and it screams at their natural desires. The allure of the bait hides the dangers of death. The allure of sin, likewise, can make us go mad. Now, back in the 90s, there was a, a video game that some of you might remember called Lemmings. Goodness no, I, I played that incessantly for hours on end. And the crux of Lemmings was, you know, they, they started on one side of the screen and they were so fixated on getting to the other side of the screen. Once you dropped them in place, they would build and construct and just... They, they needed to get from point A to point B and they didn't care about the dangers surrounding them. They were completely impervious to them. They had their blinders on and they were just fixated 
on getting to the end. But like I said, there were dangers all around them. If, if you didn't step in a, as the player to protect them, they might walk off the side of a cliff and die a horrible, really horrible, unfortunate, lemming death. But is that not true for us as well? Is it not true when our desires scream out and wants to be satisfied, are we really not like the unsuspecting lemming with our blinders on and fixated on getting to that temptation? We're so overcome by desire that we ignore the perils around us, right? Right? The allure of sin can make us go mindlessly, utterly mad. But here's the kicker. God leaves no room for passing the buck when it comes to giving in. Desire or not, we don't get to point our finger at God and say, this is your fault. We can't blame the devil. We can't blame our wife. We can't blame our family. No, we only have ourselves to blame. And that's so hard to say because I'm preaching to myself, right? Adam and Eve tried it back in the garden. And that didn't work out so well for them, right? After eating the fruit and falling and, and, and disobeying God, God came to Adam and said, hey, what happened? And he said, the woman, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. I mean, right? A sermon illustration, boys, of what not to do when you're married. Don't blame your wife. And then he turns to, to Eve and he says, what happened? And she said, the serpent made me do it, right? You see, you can't blame other people when you give in to your temptation. But let's get back to the text. In verse 14, James talks about desire and it enticing us, right? This desire that James talks about can also be called lust. In fact, the word that James uses can mean either desire or lust, but don't be confused, all right? When I say desire and lust, it's almost always equated with sex or has a sexual connotation or has to do with attraction, right? But that's, that's not what James is talking about here. The lust or desire that he's talking about, really it means anything that's prohibited by God or takes away from his glory. We see this in other verses in the New Testament like 1 Peter 2, 11 and, and 1 John 2, verse 17, so, like, it can be anything, right? It can have the, the sexual connotation, but it can also be the desire of another person's arms or the wrongly placed desire of material things or the desire to be dishonest or the desire of something that's not yours and, and, and so on and so on, right? Verse 15, James continues. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And man, that's, that's really colorful language. That's not exactly how I would describe the birth process. But James wants to shock you, right? This is the process when temptation sets root. And so James uses metaphors for conceiving and giving birth to describe what's going on. Giving in to temptation is not something that happens because of a single isolated act, no, much like conception and birth, there's a process at play here. There's a natural order. Desire conceives, temptation grows, and then sin is born, right? There's a natural order for it, but it can be a really quick thing, 
Sometimes there's no way to prepare for when temptation arises and you're giving in to sin. Sometimes it's like watching jello getting made. You know, you can sit there and watch it solidify and, and shake and, and, and jiggle. Uh, but then other times it's like a bomb that goes off. There's literally no way to prepare for it. And I think this is what Peter is getting at when he says in 1 Peter, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see, Satan is always feeding us lies. He never stops. He would love nothing more than to see God's saints stumble, question his goodness, and fall into sin. And sometimes these temptations are subtle. And other times, it's a full-on assault to our senses. For example, it might be that small voice saying, give in to your anger because you'll show how powerful you are. Or it might be, give in to your pride because it will make you feel strong. Or it might be, you know, you really deserve being honored more because of your sacrificial service to the church. That's pretty confronting. Or it might be, you know, your opinion is worth more because you've been around for a long, long time. Or you should be given greater input because you give the most in your tithes and offerings. And you know, the, the more I think about it, the more frustrating this becomes when you think about all the ways that Satan feeds us lies. I mean, here's Satan lying to us constantly and we'll choose over and over again to believe in the lies. But yet God never lies and yet we struggle to trust him. I mean, like, mmm. But regardless of who you are, no one is impervious to the lies and the temptations that befall us. This is why verse 14 and 15 is so confronting. Like I said, James is putting the spotlight back on us. He's causing us to look into a mirror, to own our garbage, to take responsibility for our temptations. And it's truly confronting stuff. And I want to look at this, this process, how temptation unfolds and finally gives into sin a bit more. I want to look at how we go from A to B so that we can have something concrete and tangible to work with as we encounter temptations and temptations. And if you're making notes, be sure to write this down. John MacArthur writes about this process and highlights four distinct steps in which temptation ultimately gives birth to sin. And here they are. Step one is desire. Step two is deception. Step three is design. And step four is disobedience. Now, we've already talked about desire, but it's worth mentioning that desire happens as an emotional response to something. Next, we see deception setting in. When, when we think about the desired object, our mind begins to rationalize justification for getting it. That's, then comes design. This is where we make the conscious decision to pursue the lust or desire until it is satisfied. And lastly, comes disobedience. This is when the thing desired, rationalized, and willed is actually done, committed, and accomplished. 
And I want to give you a a biblical example of, of what this looks like. David and Bathsheba. Yeah? If you look at 2 Samuel 11, you, you see this narrative unfolding about how David went from desire to disobedience. And I'll, I'll read it out to you. 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. That's where desire is setting in. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So by this time he's deceived. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. Now the design is starting to come into play. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now it's just full-on disobedience. So you see desire, deception, design, and disobedience. But this isn't anything new. It's not new. We've been doing this for a long time. But James wants to make a point in highlighting our weaknesses. He's not doing this for kicks. He's not saying, hey, you know what? You really aren't good at handling this temptation. No, he wants you to understand how weak you are so we can show you how strong God is. And regardless of how you look at it, you do have the ability to fight back against temptation. You do have the ability to resist. You do have the ability to overcome. You have the ability to run. You have the ability to flee. You have the ability to say no. And here's why. God always and only gives perfect and good gifts. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, for the most part, chapter 1 is about trials and temptations and faith's response to them. Remember, James, faith and action. But in the middle of chapter 1, he goes out of his way to contrast our weakness against God's character, his goodness. Let me show you. In verse 5, we see an implied absence of wisdom. And yet, James reminds us that the best wisdom is given by God. In verse 10, we see James describing the one who puts his trust in money more than God. And yet, in verse 12, we see God faithfully promising the crown of life for those who trust him. In verse 14 and 15, we see James reminding us of our fallen spiritual condition. And yet in verse 13 and 17, we see the holiness, the perfection, and the unchanging character of God. And then in verse 18, we see the love of God on display. More on that in a moment. All of these wisdom, a proper understanding of God himself and his love for us are all examples of good and perfect gifts available to us when we're struggling. So let me ask you, straight up, how, how, do you see God working in your life in these areas? Do you see how God is providing good and perfect gifts to you when you're struggling? And let me, let me just say for just a disclaimer, not a disclaimer, but just let me just say, when James talks about giving good and perfect gifts, He's not talking about health. He's not talking about wealth. And he's not talking about prosperity. Have you considered that maybe James is talking about 
how God gives us the gift of morality. He sets the standard for morality or, or value or our identity or purpose or eternal perspective or conviction of sin or a savior who can empathize with our weaknesses. Are these not good and perfect gifts? Are these not the type of gifts we need when we war against temptation? Do you see God as the ultimate gift or just a convenient genie in a bottle that we can rub and and hopefully he'll get us out of a jam when we're fighting temptation? But the point of verse 17 is quite simple. God, as the father of lights, doesn't change. Now, I've always wondered what exactly did James mean when he calls God the father of lights? It was a term that's always eluded me, right? And so in preparation, I did a bit of digging, and it's important for us to understand why he's calling God the Father of Lights. You see, this term was very familiar to James' Jewish audience. In fact, before the Shema was read in Jewish worship, it was quite customary to recite the phrase, Blessed be the Lord our God who formed the lights. At the time, the celestial lights, the planets, the moon, the sun were, were, were viewed as symbols of purity, and that God as father of lights is even greater than these. But this is where things change. Unlike how these lights change from season to season, God does not. He doesn't. His character never changes. And this is important because if God doesn't change, if he never changes, if nothing about his character ever changes or is altered, we know he's reliable. We know his word, the revelation of who he is, is trustworthy. And that the gifts he gives are always good and always perfect. And this brings me to my last point. You can trust in God when you're being tempted because God is the author of life. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This whole brought us forth birth language, it is birth language. It's, it's birth language all over again. Other translations say he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And James does this on purpose. He wants you to see the contrast between verse 15 and verse 18. One birth leads to death and the other birth leads to life. This is a new spiritual birth. It's a birth that results in a transformation of the mind and of the heart. In fact, it's quite radical. In other words, as one commentator tells us, the life of God is put into the soul of man. And this transformation or this new birth is only available through Jesus. Now let me be crystal clear on something. The death of Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't a knee-jerk response to what had happened back in the garden. No, God immediately and deliberately decided by his own authority to rescue, redeem, and regenerate a people of himself. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done to bring us back to God was completed. Jesus paid a penalty that we so rightfully deserve. Jesus endured the wrath of God that we should endure. Jesus laid down his life so that we would be raised to life again. And he did it to rescue, to redeem, and restore the thing 
which had been destroyed so long ago. Now last week, Brother Steve preached on the goodness of God as found in his wrath, and no doubt, man, he did a fantastic job with a really hard text. But he's right. God is good. And his love is profound even in his wrath. And in his hatred for sin and evil, God poured out the full measure of his wrath on Jesus, this perfect sacrificial lamb so that we could have life. And only a perfect sacrifice by a perfect God could perfectly redeem an imperfect people. My friends, this is the love of God made manifest, that the author of life would give up his life so that we might live. And those in the first century were the first fruits of this. For those who received the gospel and accepted it, they were the first fruits of this gift. Now, this term first fruits, it's an Old Testament term that goes back to Exodus and Leviticus, and it basically goes like this. When you had a crop or livestock or even children, you would take the first portion of it and dedicate it back to God for his purposes. But it also acted like a foreshadow of what's to come. And so James, when he talks about the first fruits of his creatures, he's talking about those in the first century who would receive and believe upon Jesus for their salvation. And here's the cool part, right? Here's the cool part. Those people in the first century were a foreshadow of what's to come. Like, do you follow? Those in the first century were a foreshadow of what's to come. Many, 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 many saints over the last 2,000 years have put their faith in Christ for their salvation because of these people 2,000 years ago. And it's a really cool thing to try and think about, why am I a Christian now in 2020? Count, like goodness knows how many people before you have, have, have professed faith and persevered through the trial and through the temptation and stayed true to the end to receive the crown of life so that you could be someone who would profess faith in Christ. So let me finish off verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. If you noticed, this is a beatitude. Blessed is the man. It follows the same pattern as those found in Matthew 5. And in this context, it's important to understand why you're blessed. It's not some superficial hashtag blessed, I had a great hair day type of blessing. No, it's this deep understanding that God himself is powerfully, faithfully, and patiently willing and able to help you endure the trial. But what's more than that, it's about having an eternal perspective. Don't forget back in verse 2, James tells us to consider joy when we encounter trials of many kinds because the trials mature you. They make you more complete. They make you more resilient. And they transform you more into the image of Christ. But it takes time. It takes time and and patience to endure and stand the test. As you encounter trial after trial, you're being refined and tested like precious coins and metals to burn away all the impurities. Like these precious metals which pass through a refining process, once you have stood the test, you are deemed genuine. And for those who endure, they receive the crown of life. (laughs) But let's not be mistaken. 
This isn't a literal crown. No, according to David Platt, it's actually a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life. Again, I mentioned that James uses four metaphors. This is the fourth. He's using a metaphor and an analogy of of an athlete. The crown of life is like the laurel wreath that's given to the winner, that's placed on his head in an event or a competition back in ancient Rome. The crown of life itself might have little to no materialistic value, but it's, it's the acknowledgement of the preparation, of the endurance, of the testing, and the overcoming of the challenge that is significant. And this is what Paul, I think, is getting at when he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Because much like those who came before us, we too have to fight temptation and run a race and endure to the end. So let us do so with our faces turned to Christ. You know, I really, really struggled with this sermon. I sensed at the end of April that it would be a, a very challenging sermon to write. In fact, I spent the better part of two weeks working on it. And I, I was up at 4 a.m. yesterday morning and I only finished it at 11 o'clock last night. I went through seven different drafts to get to this point. And I can honestly say that I am spiritually, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. I feel like not only through writing the sermon, but through the last 16 weeks, I'm living out James 1. I'm tired, and I'm sure many of you feel that way as well. But what I, know, what I do know is this. The more I spend in James, the more I'm realizing that life is filled with trials and temptations. It's funny how soaking in the word makes you more aware of your surroundings and weaknesses and, in turn, God's goodness. You see, temptation doesn't care about how you feel or how badly you want to resist. It just wants to be fed. And I've also discovered that temptation makes you feel like you're all alone in the battle. It wants you to feel helpless. It wants you to blame others when you give in. And more importantly, it wants you to blame God. It wants you to blame God so that you feel like you can't trust him. For some of us, our trust in God is rock solid in the trial and temptation. And for others, trusting comes with great difficulty. But regardless of where you are, let me leave you with this. Let me leave you with a promise from God himself. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But... With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My friends, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is who God is. And at the end of the day, James ultimately wants you to answer this one question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, it has gripped me in ways that I didn't know were possible. And I can only pray, Lord, that you would give the people tuning in ears to hear and hearts to receive this message.
Lord, you are good. You are great. You are faithful. Father, you can't be tempted, nor do you tempt. And so, Lord, as my brothers and sisters, and indeed those who are tuning in, are listening, I pray, Lord, that you would lead them by your spirit this week. You would remind them that you are for them, that you would walk with them. Because, Lord, we know that we can go to you over and over and over again and over and over and over again. You are able and you receive us and you can empathize with all of our weaknesses. This is who you are, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.